Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Today, we're returning to our Top Fives series. It is almost the end of 2019. Brad, were you aware of that? Really? I, the end of the decade? Wow. Yeah, I know. I, I I looked up and it's no longer 2014. I can't believe it. Yeah, and with that in mind, we thought that we would come to you, Film and Whiskey Nation, with our top five <laughs> letdowns of the 2010s. Yeah, we hate to end the, the decade on a downer of a note here, but we talked for a hot second about doing our best of the decade. That It doesn't necessarily make really great audio if I have five movies as my best of the decade and Brad has seen zero of them, or vice versa. But everyone has seen movies within this decade that they can point to and say, that movie let me down. So we're really excited to bring you our top five letdowns. Now, Brad and I talked for a little bit about what it means for a movie to be a letdown. It doesn't necessarily mean that the movie was awful. We're not doing worst movies of the 2010s. It could still be a movie that was like a six and a half or a seven out of 10 in your book. But when you went into the movie with so much hype, expecting a 10 out of 10, and you walk out with a seven out of 10 movie, that's a letdown. So we're going to talk about some movie going experiences that we had in the 2010s that just let us down. Yeah, these movies really fall into one of two categories for me. Either A, it had been hyped by friends of mine or by the media or kind of by outside sources, and I hadn't initially expected to enjoy the movie, but it had been hyped so much that I was let down when I saw the product. Or I personally had known about the movie or the history of the movie or whatever, and I personally had gotten myself hyped up for the movie and was let down with the final product. So we're also really excited in the course of this episode to be reading some submissions that people wrote into us on Twitter and on our Discord channel. Now, we haven't really plugged the Discord channel a lot on this podcast. We'll be sure to include a link that invites you to join our Discord channel in the show notes. So if you go to the website, look at the show notes for the podcast, we'll have a link to the Discord channel. But we're excited to highlight some of our listeners' biggest letdowns of the decade as well. And while we do it, Brad, what kind of whiskey are we going to be sipping on today? Bob, we're going to be sipping on some good old Doc Swinson's. Doc Swinson's whiskey. Doc Swinson's has a really cool story. We will get to talking about that as the episode progresses. But I want to get into our lists of the biggest letdowns of the 2010s. Brad, I had a ton on my list. I actually ended up having some honorable mentions. Was this list easy for you to make as well? Honestly, it wasn't. It it took me a little while to think back through the movies I've seen in this decade. You know, unfortunately, when you chose me as a podcast host, Bob, I don't know if you realize that I actually don't go out to the movie theaters very often. So, really? (laughs) I don't know if you knew, but I don't see a lot of movies. (laughs) Right. So... Long story short, I don't really remember tons and tons of movies that I've seen this this decade that were huge letdowns. However, the more I thought back and did a little research, I came up with the top five that definitely were huge letdowns for me. 
Well, why don't we get into it? Brad, hit me with your number five biggest letdown of the 2010s. This was one that, honestly, I know that it it received bad reviews, but I don't think it was ever going to be a big movie. I was extremely let down by Ender's Game, which came out in 2013. Tell me a little bit about that movie, Brad. I'm not big into watching sci-fi films, and when that movie came out and got bad reviews, I skipped it altogether. So fill me in on Ender's Game and why it was such a letdown. Yeah, so Ender's Game is a movie that was based on a book written in the 1980s by Orson Scott Card. Now, these books, uh, he's written a whole bunch of books within this universe. The two main ones are Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow, which is a companion novel written at the exact same timeline as Ender's Game, but from a different perspective. And these two books really helped shape my childhood. Like, I would highly recommend, if you have any affinity for the sci-fi genre and you have not read Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow, go read them. They're two of the best books I have ever read in my life. I will still put them in my top ten books of all time. They are just beautiful stories of young children coming into their own, of developing character of learning what's really important in this world and beyond into space. I mean, they are just some of the most beautifully written books I have ever read in my life. And so while I know that the movie probably was never going to garner wider acclaim, even if they had been good movies, I was so excited to see the world that I had imagined and was just utterly disappointed in the product that was given. Yeah, and actually, you're not the only one. One of our Discord followers wrote in, uh, this was Corinne, and she said that on her list of biggest letdowns of the 2010, the top two for her would be The Last Airbender and Ender's Game. She says, why make so many changes for the worse when the original story was great? Such letdowns. So, Brad, I have to imagine that they really, really undermined the source material to try to make something new for the movie. Yeah, they really just brutalized it. They they forced it into kind of a hole that you couldn't come back from. And it just, the acting performances were very uninspired. The script was very drawl. It just was a sad, sad movie when the source material was so spectacular. All right, there you have it. Brad's number five, Ender's Game, which brings me to my number five. A movie that is held in super high regard. It's being listed on many, many best of the decade lists. It's in the IMDb Top 250. I'm talking about Martin Scorsese's 2013 effort, The Wolf of Wall Street. I was so excited for this film. And honestly, I was let down the first time. I thought that this movie, I have always thought this movie uh, is is a misstep, a rare misstep for Martin Scorsese. It runs about three hours in length. Uh, it's one of those films that you can tell was really crafted in the editing room. Sources say that Scorsese let all of these guys, you know, DiCaprio and Jonah Hill, just improvise and improvise scenes upon scenes upon scenes. And originally they had a cut of the film that was between four and a half and five hours long. They finally got it down to three hours. And this film just feels like it's in shambles. It's just a rambling mess of a movie. When it was released, tons of critics thought that it was glorifying the lifestyle that it portrayed. And I actually kind of agree with that. I think that the end of the film where we see the character of Jordan Belfort kind of get the comeuppance that he's been deserving all along, it comes too little too late. 
I've tried to watch this movie on probably five separate occasions now because every time I come across it as an utter work, you know, of a master, a masterpiece for Martin Scorsese, I give it another chance and it has just never ever worked for me. If you'd like to hear a great, great summation of why this movie doesn't work, check out Josh Larson's review of The Wolf of Wall Street. We had him on the podcast earlier this year. Josh's review of Wolf of Wall Street is what got me following him as a movie critic, and I agree with everything he says about this movie. I know that I'll probably get pushback for this, but my number five biggest letdown is The Wolf of Wall Street. Man, anything that friend of show Josh Larson says, I'm on board. So I will agree with you 100%, even though I've never seen the movie. Well, we're going to hear from Josh Larson later in the podcast. But before we get there, Brad, hit us with your number four biggest letdown. All right. So my number four biggest letdown of the 2010s. Was a film that took the world by storm specifically by an ice storm. Bob, I am talking about 2013's Frozen. Ugh. Robert. Oh, Brad, I'm with you. I hate this movie. I hate this movie so much. Please, please go in on Frozen. Oh my gosh, where to start? So here's the thing, though. We're not just talking about worst movies, like we said. We're talking about biggest letdowns. This movie had been hyped for me so much. I'm not going to lie. I did not see it until probably like 2015. But all I ever heard was, oh, Frozen, it's beautiful. It's a twist on the normal princess story. It's heroic. It's awesome. The music is great. And so I was like, wow, this like this must be a really great movie. You know, Disney does great princess movies. I'm excited to see this. You know, I, I had just seen Tangled a few years before. I think that Tangled is one of the best modern Disney princess films. It's spectacular. So I, I was really pumped about this. And then I sat down and was subjected to a buffoonish snowman who is trying to be funny. I'm subjected to these songs that were so obviously created to be pop sensations. I I just can't get over how bad the script was. I can't get over how... I, ugh. I'm sorry, there's just so much about this movie that I hated that I just, I don't know if I can go on. It really, really was one of the biggest letdowns for me. This truly was a massive letdown because the movie comes out and out of nowhere, it just starts getting huge critical acclaim. And like you said, Brad, a lot of the acclaim for this movie came from the fact that it sort of undermined or subverted what a typical Disney princess movie was about. And I respect that. And I actually really like that it went in that direction. The problem is that I didn't think that any one component of this movie was inherently better than most Disney movies. The songs are very good. The songs are super catchy. But like you said, I think the songs in Tangled are equally as good. And I would put the love ballad in that film, uh, I, I See the Light, up against any song in Frozen. One of the big problems I have with Frozen is that uh, if you've ever, <laughs> I used to babysit, and if you've ever watched uh, the Disney Channel, what they do in between TV shows on the Disney Channel is they take small little, like, made for Disney Channel music videos and they play them in between shows. And as I watched each musical number in Frozen unfold, I realized that they made these songs into 
small music videos. The songs did not serve the plot in any particular way. The way they shot each of these scenes didn't serve the plot in any way. They literally made these songs to be YouTube clips. And I had never been so keenly aware of how Disney was manipulating us for every dollar it could get out of us than I was watching this film. This movie is just a cash grab disguised as a movie. I hate it with every fiber of my being, and I am so glad you chose it as your number four biggest letdown, Brad. If this one, if Frozen 1 was a cash grab, what does that make Frozen 2, Bob? (laughs) I don't know, because I have not and will not see it. (laughs) I will not be let down. Well, Brad, my number four biggest letdown also came in the early 2010s. It came hot on the heels of one of the best movie trailers I have ever seen. It comes as an extension of one of the most iconic horror franchises of all time. I am talking about Ridley Scott's mythology-building movie, Prometheus. Ridley Scott takes back the director's reins, and he says that he's going to expand the mythology of the alien universe. We're finally going to find out what was up with that big space jockey that was in the spaceship that they found in the movie Alien. And Ridley Scott decides to take us back to the founding, the foundations of the Earth and how humanity got here. He tells us this story about how the universe is controlled by these giant sort of godlike aliens, how they all end up dying because the aliens burst out of their chests. It is a mess of a movie. It goes all over the place. It doesn't do anything an alien movie is supposed to do. And the biggest cardinal sin this movie commits is that it is in no way thrilling. There's one really suspenseful scene where the main character has to cut a sort of embryonic version of an alien out of herself. But other than that, this movie was a slog. It provided unnecessary backstory that none of us needed from the alien universe. And after watching the trailer and getting so hyped for this new Ridley Scott alien film, I have rarely had a letdown as big as Prometheus. Bob, I agree with everything you said about the movie, but I want to tell you a short story about my attempt to go see Prometheus in the theaters. So my best friend Mike and I decided, wow, Prometheus looks really cool. Neither he or I had ever watched any of the Alien films. We're not into the series. We just thought that the trailer looked really cool. So we decided, let's go see Prometheus. So we go on a Friday night opening night and it's sold out it's a massive theater it's sold out we're like ah whatever we went home and played video games so the next friday night comes and we're like all right you know it's a week after it came out let's go see it so we go to see it again it's sold out again the next weekend it's completely sold out and we're like well let's just go see something and so we went and saw that's my boy with adam sandler and andy (laughs) samberg (laughs) Which might have been one of the worst movies. Did that make your letdowns list? It should have. I didn't have any expectations for that movie, and it still let me down. It was such (laughs) a bad movie. And then the third week we finally get in and see the crap that Ridley Scott gave us. I mean... Prometheus literally led me to watching two terrible movies, not just one. Yeah, dude. that's, That's the mark of a truly bad film. Right? Well, Brad, what do you say we hit pause here and we try these two expressions of Doc Swinson's whiskey? Let's get to it.
All right, so today we are checking out Doc Swinson's whiskey. Now, both of these samples that we're going to be trying today were sent to us from Doc Swinson. So we want to say, first of all, thank you to Doc Swinson's whiskey for sending us these samples. We love featuring craft distillers and craft spirits on our podcast. So thanks again, Doc Swinson's. If you go to Doc Swinson's website, the way they describe their story is that they are a small band of whiskey lovers. And what they do is they travel around to distilleries and they buy up very, very small batches, just sometimes even single barrels of really unique expressions of whiskeys. And sometimes they'll blend them together and sometimes they'll bottle them as is. But they're essentially like a bourbon community or a bourbon society that uh, buys product. They source all of their products. They sell it as a, as a Doc Swinson's expression. And so when you buy a Doc Swinson's whiskey, the label that says Doc Swinson's is almost like their stamp of approval that they have went out, found a really cool whiskey, bought it for themselves and are now giving it to the general public to try. And so what that means is that a lot of their whiskeys are in really, really limited small runs and that they are kind of experimental. And so the two we're trying today have some really interesting stuff going on with them. The first of which we're going to try is the Doc Swinson's Straight Rye, which is finished in rum casks. I'm really excited to try this because I want to see the balance of how the sort of rye spice, that that deep rye bread smell will mingle with that sugarcane smell that you get from rum. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this Doc Swinson's rye? Wow, yeah, that is an interesting nose. I am not sure what to do with it yet. Like you said, there's almost like kind of a sugary... Yeah, I mean, yeah, sugar cane rum type of hint on it. But honestly, I'm not getting much outside of that. I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Bob. Yeah, I think this is an interesting pairing of spirits. Like, I think that a bourbon would be a way more natural thing to age in rum casks than a rye. There's just something about, like, the the not just the flavor profile, but the nosing profile of a rye that just doesn't seem like it would mix super well with rum casks. And so when I put this up to my nose, the two of those together is creating this almost sort of strange, uh, like almost chemically smell. You can get the rye, but then there's also this layer that just doesn't quite seem to go with the rye. I get a lot of wood. You can really smell the oak, kind of a sawdusty smell to go with this. I'm not sure if this nose is really working for me, Brad. I'm really hoping the taste kind of comes back to redeem it because the nose is a little iffy for me. Yeah, me too. I Honestly, Bob, I just took a sip of it, and it's kind of more of the same. I, I'm struggling with the flavor. It's very ethanol forward. I feel like I'm getting a lot of the power of the alcohol. Yeah, I'm actually having a little bit different experience. I find this really pleasant, for especially for being a rye. It's really bright. Uh, I'm getting some citrus notes on it, which I wasn't expecting from those sort of deep, dark, caramely rum notes that you would think. You do get the rye spice. But I don't find it to be really bitter, and I'm really, really happy because after that nose, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I find this pretty pleasant. Brad, it seems like you're not really having the same experience I am. It's just okay. There's a little bit of rye, but not much. There's a little bit of sweetness, but not much. Uh, it's not terribly viscous. It just kind of is. It's just decent on my palate. I will say that after I took a sip and then went back to nose it again, I had this really crazy sensation that it, it only happens to me like when you're drinking a, like a Coca-Cola. And you know, because Coke and Pepsi are very different in my mind. Like Coke has that sort of spiciness to it. There's a spice to it that Pepsi doesn't have. And breathing this in again, I got a lot of that like breathing in a Coca-Cola. 
even like the sort of carbonation. I think the rye spice is kind of mimicking the carbonation of like a bottle of Coke. And I really, really enjoy that. But for some reason, I didn't pick up on that like on my initial nosing. But now there's something in this that's really reminding me of those Coca-Cola notes. It might be the rum finish. I have no idea. This is a really interesting whiskey. I don't know if this is something that I could drink every day or even on anything but special occasions. But I think Doc Swinton's is really living up to its affinity for experimentation because this is a really interesting experimental whiskey. Yeah, if I had to give it a score out of 50, I would probably end up giving it like a 28 or something like that. It's it's a little bit above average, but not my favorite. Yeah, I think I'd probably give it a, quite a bit higher than that, actually, Brad. I'd go at least with a 35 and maybe a little bit above that, just depending on what it retails for. We're not actually giving it a score or including value in any of this, but I thought this whiskey got better as it went along. The nose really threw me off, but after I took a taste of it, after I let it kind of sit on my palate for a little while, some of those rum finish notes really started to open up the whiskey for me. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Well, what do you say we move on to Doc Swinson's bourbon? Yeah, so this is actually a 12-year bourbon that is finished in Cabernet Sauvignon barrels. So we're looking at another wine-finished bourbon, Brad. This one clocks in at 92.4 proof, so not incredibly high proof, but enough to pack a bit of a punch. What are you picking up on the nose of this Cabernet Sauvignon-finished 12-year bourbon? Man, I was literally stunned when you said that this was finished in a Cab Sauve barrel, because all I could smell on this was grain. I like. I feel mm. like I just get this heavy uh, wheat, kind of like a malted barley type of grain. I don't know. It just yeah. smells extremely grainy to me. Yeah, the first thing that I wrote down was that this has a funk to it. The aging has done something to the bourbon in particular that this is – it's just got a funk to it. I wrote down f- uh, wood, dusty. There's There's like a sawdust going on in this as well. And I did start to get some fruit notes once you get past that initial sort of wave of that like mustiness. Brad, you're going to laugh at me again, but I wrote down banana. But what it really reminds me of isn't like a fresh banana, isn't a banana split. It's like if you've ever had those dried banana chips. Oh, yeah. There's something. Yeah, there's something like sugary, waxy to the way this smells. I do get some dried fruit on it. It does have those classic brown sugar vanilla notes, but... You really do have to get past that initial wave of, I don't know what else to call it, just the funk that it has to it. Yeah, it's a strong funk. I'm really interested to take a taste and see what the flavor is like. So right at the tip of the tongue, I thought to myself, wow, I'm drinking wine. Like that tasted like a beautiful Sauvignon. And then at the back of the palate, I got all of that grain that I smelt on the nose. So it's not an extremely balanced whiskey, but it's very interesting. Are you picking up much in in the taste that reminds you of bourbon, or is it just kind of like that raw, young grain? Oh, yeah, it's definitely just an extremely grainy whiskey. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised at this one. It doesn't really taste like a whiskey that's been aged for 12 years. It does taste a little bit young. I do think that the Cab Sauv has done something uh, to enhance the flavor a little bit. But you're right, Brad. It is this sort of like polar opposite on the front of the tongue, on the back of the tongue between, oh, I'm drinking a wine. Nope, I'm drinking a really high proof spirit on the back of my tongue. Yeah, I I will say, I remember when we went to Bardstown Bourbon Company and they gave us some of their Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve. 
And I remember them saying that they they took it out and tasted it at different periods during the aging process when it was in the Pfeiffer Pavit wine barrels. Yep. And they just said that uh, it tasted a little bit off. And there was a very specific amount of time that they were like, no, that's it. That's perfect. I, I hate to say this, but I feel like this is one of the samples that was a little bit off. And I think the magic number for Bardstown, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 18 months that they left theirs mm-hmm. in the Pfeiffer Pavit barrels. And I really love what this whiskey is trying to do. I just don't know if it 100% succeeds. But I'll tell you what, Brad, like I, at the end of the day, I'm really happy with both of these samples that Doc Swinson sent us because I like trying stuff like this. I like it when people are doing experimental stuff and it's not just the same old thing. Yeah, these are two of the most fascinatingly unique whiskeys that I have ever drank. And I I know that I might have come across a little bit harsh on these, but if you don't experiment with whiskey, you don't get amazing products. Yeah, and that's not to say that everything that Doc Swinson's does is this sort of off-the-wall experimental stuff. They have single barrel programs. Uh, From what I've heard, their single barrel rye is fantastic. Uh, So if you can find Doc Swinson's on the shelf, they have a really great reputation in the whiskey community, especially in, you know, the United States and their bourbon community. So first of all, we want to say thank you one more time to Doc Swinson's for sending us these samples. We would be happy to try anything you'd like to send us in the future especially if it's something as unique and fascinating as the two samples we have in front of us today. Yeah, these are phenomenally interesting whiskeys. Keep sending them our way. I want to try everything you put out. You have intrigued me, Dr. Swinson. Well, let's get back into talking about some movies that did not intrigue us as we look at each of our top three biggest letdowns of the 2010s. So that was Doc Swinson's. We are fabulously interested in what they have to offer. So my number three movie, top letdown of the 2010s, is a musical. That came out in 2017. It is The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman. Bob, I cannot tell you how much I heard about this movie in a similar fashion to Frozen, that this was a movie that just just grabbed your admiration. It, it was revolutionary. It changed the way we understood musicals. Blah, 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 blah. Bob, this movie was hideously bad. This movie sucks, Brad. Like, <laughs> here, like here's the thing about Frozen. Frozen, at the end of the day... It's still a fairly good movie. Like I yes. don't I don't like it because I hate the overhype of it. The Greatest Showman is a legitimately objectively awful film. Yeah, I totally agree. When you look at the movie, the plot doesn't really make much sense. When you look at the outer, you know, the real world, we just had Barnum and Bailey's circus shut down. Like why are we making a movie that is glorifying the circus? And all of the different problems that we've seen with it throughout the years. Like, just so many parts of this movie were bad. It's so historically inaccurate to who, you know, P.T. Barnum actually was. The relationship that he had with this opera singer. There are so many problems with this movie. I don't even know where to start. But what I will say is that one of the biggest selling points that was, you know, sold to me for this movie was that it's an anthem for the unnoticed. 
that it's a movie that glorifies and honors and, you know, gives voice to the outcasts of society. And I watched this movie thinking, yes, like that is something that I want. I, I want people who are unheard and don't have a voice in society to have a voice. But what I consistently saw in this movie was that the freaks and the weirdos of the world were shuttled together in a circus and given no voice, that they were treated poorly, that P.T. Barnum continuously put his own goals and his own dreams in front of what they hoped for their own lives. He used them to make money. And I just don't understand how this was considered a movie that would give them voice. And honestly, that was the biggest letdown for me about this movie. Brad, I think we need to do an entire episode on this film at some point because I could go on and on about everything that I have a problem with in this movie. I think one of the biggest things for me is that this movie undermines its own argument in favor of empowering the disenfranchised. They have this gigantic number called This Is Me, which was the huge song from the movie. At which point you you get the idea that the quote unquote freaks are like, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to be, you know, in your face about who we are because we love ourselves. And then after that song, they disappear from the movie for like another half hour. They serve no functional purpose to the plot of the film. Hugh Jackman kind of learns his lesson. And then the freaks come back in the movie like this. This movie is just a, a complete train wreck. This The plot makes no sense. It is just a jumbled together mess of a film. I think the songs are awful from like a, a music theory standpoint. It's like, let's take the four most basic chords that you hear on the radio. Let's take lyrics that are so vague that they don't even necessarily apply to the characters in the movie, but you can sing them as you go for your morning run. And then people will love our musical. This movie rode in on the coattails of Hamilton and sold itself as like, we're the modern musical. This is how musicals are done now. And it is like a cheap, generic knockoff of Hamilton. And it's everything I hate about where the musical has taken itself in the 2000s. Bob, we need to do another episode on this. And we also need we also need I to move wait. on before your blood pressure hits like 400. <laughs> I think I popped a blood vessel over here. So let me get into... You might have. Let me get into my number three. I kind of fudged it a little bit on this one, Brad, because I did more of a category than one particular movie. And my number three biggest letdown is Quentin Tarantino's last two movies. So I'm talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Hateful Eight. After 2012... Quentin Tarantino makes uh, Django Unchained, which I think may be, in my opinion, the best film he's ever made, including Pulp Fiction. He comes out with A Hateful Eight, which was plagued by behind-the-scenes drama, and that movie, I don't think anyone would argue, is near the top of his canon. And then this year, he comes out with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It markets itself as having the biggest star pairing since Robert Redford and Paul Newman. You've got Leo DiCaprio, you've got Brad Pitt, And I go see this movie that is almost three hours long, and I'd heard all about how Tarantino had structured this movie differently. This is a hangout movie. This is not a Tarantino movie. And it seemed like Tarantino was trying to make a movie like someone else and not like Quentin Tarantino. And the ending of the film, and I'm not going to spoil it because, Brad, I know you haven't seen it yet, but the ending of the film is like pure Tarantino 
if someone was trying to write like Tarantino. So it's it, it comes across like Tarantino is just not comfortable in his own skin in this movie. I spent two hours and 45 minutes watching this slow, meandering movie that's building to nothing. I get 15 minutes of fast violence at the end of the film that comes across more like an Eli Roth movie than a Tarantino film. And at the end of the day, what's it all for? What's it all really about? What kind of exercise was Tarantino trying to do? At the end of the day, it just seemed like sound and fury, that there was nothing really behind it. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Hateful Eight are my number three biggest letdown of the 2010s. Yeah, I honestly have not seen either of those films. The Hateful Eight, because I heard it wasn't good. And I just haven't gotten around to, you know, his most recent endeavor. I, I really need to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I am a little bit disappointed to hear that you hated it so much, Bob. Well, Brad, what do you think about giving us your number two biggest letdown? Yeah, so I also, for my number two and my number one letdown, I'm actually going to do the same as you, Bob. I'm going to give you kind of a category of movies. And for my number two biggest letdown of the 2010s, I'm going to give you every single Star Wars movie created by Disney. Every one of them. Every single one. So we're talking like... The, the Skywalker trilogy and the sort of knockoff, like the, the one-offs, like Rogue One and Solo. Yes, and I okay. I will say fully, openly, I have not seen Solo because of the it's, terrible it's things. It's the worst one of all of them, Brad. It's like, again, objectively bad film. Yeah, and, and, and that's, honestly, that's my biggest struggle is that I do not think that any of the movies that have been made by Disney are objectively good films. And I, you know, we already had a fight about the original Star Wars in 1977. So I I will fully out myself. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, guys. Like, Film and Whiskey Nation, know this. Brad G. loves Star Wars. Like, it is one of my favorite universes in the world. It's fun. It's interesting. There's so many cool storylines that you can do with it. And Disney took it. And I'll say this, I was leery of Disney buying Star Wars. I was worried that they were just going to turn it into a consumeristic cash grab type of product. You know, and there's a part of me that says, yeah, they bought the franchise for a billion dollars. Obviously, they want to make money off of it. And I don't blame them for that. You know, George Lucas wanted to make money off of his Star Wars, too. That's okay. But my struggle is that they're just not making good movies. They're not making good choices with the franchise, and they've they've acknowledged that. You know, and Bob and I have texted back and forth about, you know, the final Star Wars of the Skywalker trilogy is coming out this week as of this recording. And we've talked about the infighting that they've had between J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson and blaming each other. And there's just so many problems with the Disney Star Wars universe that I, I'm i just so let down by it. Bob, I literally cried when I went to see The Force Awakens. You know, you get those horns, the bum, ba-da-bum, and the, the, the script comes up and, it, and the text starts rolling, and I literally cried. I thought to myself, I never thought I would get to see this again. And Disney brought this to me, and I was so excited to have that experience again. And I've been let down at every single turn since. And I'm just going to stop right there. I could go on and on and on about this. 
but I'm very disappointed. And this one is on a more personal level for me than all of the other films. Yeah, I can tell, Brad. And and I don't even think that my number two pick is anywhere close to the level of emotional attachment that yours was. But in terms of franchise and franchise power and franchise expectations, I think it's right in line. There were 20-something movies leading up to Avengers Endgame. And for me... One of the best in the whole series was Avengers Infinity War. I thought that the character of Thanos was the most menacing, the most promising villain in a comic book film since the Joker in the Dark Knight. The way that film ended was such a gut punch. And I, to this day, I think Infinity War is nearly perfect in the way that it left us on a cliffhanger like a good penultimate chapter should do. And then we get Endgame. I don't think Endgame is a terrible movie, but it is my number two biggest letdown of the 2010s. As I started watching Endgame, I had this weird, uneasy feeling that parts of it felt rushed, that they were trying to get a movie out to meet a deadline. It felt kind of shaggy in parts. Some storylines went nowhere. I didn't understand why Hawkeye had to be in Asia being a mercenary. We never really talked about that anymore. The time travel elements don't really make that much sense. We try to explain away the way that Captain America diverges from everything we've learned about the time travel elements at the end of the film. One of the biggest challenges for me was realizing that this movie was not quite like Age of Ultron, which was also a letdown. Age of Ultron was a movie that didn't have a very good story or well thought out plot, and it suffered because of it. This movie was not quite like that. What I realized halfway through this movie was that the filmmakers just didn't care to make a story or a plot. This movie was all about fan service. It was about giving us moments that paid off things we wanted to see throughout the series. We wanted to see Agent Carter and Captain America get together, so they gave us that. We wanted to see Captain America make clever little quips about past Captain America, so they gave us that. You know, we knew Tony Stark had to die at some point, so they give us that. But none of these beats hit me in an emotional way. And I looked around me in the theater and I see people weeping. And I don't know if I just missed something, but this movie never quite did it for me. I saw it two times in the theater. I would give it about a 6 out of 10, but it just seemed like an undercooked underdeveloped idea of a movie that relied too much on visual payoffs and fan service at the expense of actually telling a good story. Avengers Endgame is my number two biggest letdown of the 2010s. Yeah, Bob, I'm I'm not totally there with you, but honestly, I'm not a huge Marvel Cinematic Universe guy. So for me, I, I kind of watched it and I was like, yeah, that was decent. I'd probably give it like a seven out of 10. But it wasn't a letdown for me in the same way, partially because I just wasn't looking forward to it that much. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think for a lot of people, though, we go in expecting a 10 out of 10 from that movie. And even a 7 out of 10, in my mind, means it is kind of a letdown. Yeah, no, yeah, you're definitely right on that. Well, that brings us to our number one. And Brad and I have the same number one pick. And unsurprisingly... Most of the people that wrote into our podcast also have the same number one pick. Brad, why don't you reveal to our listeners what the number one biggest letdown of the 2010s was? Bob, 
The Hobbit was so bad. Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy it was is the biggest so letdown bad. in the history of mankind. I mean, just Peter Jackson set himself up for failure by making one of the greatest trilogies of all time with the original Lord of the Rings that the Hobbit trilogy, A, shouldn't have been a trilogy. At most, it should have been two movies. They added stuff to the story that made no sense. They added stuff to the story that does not fit with the lore of Lord of the Rings. Nope. The characters are uninteresting. I understand that having, you know, 13 dwarves bumbling their way through Middle Earth can be difficult to keep track of, but they could have done it better. I mean, the CGI animation was terrible. It was uninteresting. It was unrealistic. One of the most beautiful things about the original Lord of the Rings franchise was the costuming and how real it felt. Yeah. Peter Jackson's choice yeah. to film the first one, uh, what, what, what's the frame rate that he changed it to? Yeah, they called it high frame rate. I think it was 60 frames a second. It, it makes it look like a video game. Yeah. And, not, and like you said, Brad, like everything in this movie was shot on a green screen. And a significant portion of Lord of the Rings was as well. But this movie looked more like the Star Wars prequels than it looked like Lord of the Rings. There was just this lived in feel to Lord of the Rings. And some of it was the miniature work and the great sets that were built. And this movie never had that authentic feel to it, partly because of the way it was shot. Yeah. And then on top of that, you can just you just get the feel that every single one of these movies was a cash grab. Yep. You watch the special features about these movies and you find out that, you know, Peter Jackson was pulled onto the the set at the last minute to direct the films and he had no idea what was going on. I mean, there was portions of filming where he told Andy Serkis to just go off and film a battle scene. And when Andy asked him, yeah. like, well, what for? Like, what's the plot? What's going on? He said, I don't know. We'll use it somewhere. Like, and I do feel bad for Peter Jackson. You know, he got pulled onto this at the last minute. I don't think all of it is his fault. And I'm still extremely appreciative for what he gave us in The Lord of the Rings. I just wish that they had put the money to the side and said, hey, let's make an actually good movie or two movies that stay true to the books in the way that the original trilogy did. And I think they could have come up with a phenomenal product. Well, here's the thing. I think that The Desolation of Smaug is a legitimately good movie. I enjoyed myself watching that movie. And that made the final chapter, The Battle of the Five Armies, all the more of a letdown for me. Because the first movie was not great. The second movie I thought was incredible. And then the third movie was the worst of the three. It had absolutely no reason to exist. And this is something that our listeners got into when they wrote to us. Here's a note from Sylvan Mist who, when we asked what the biggest letdown was, said the Hobbit trilogy. They tried to turn a cute adventure bedtime story feeling awesome novel into a trilogy as epic and grand as Lord of the Rings. They were related stories, but they did not have the same timbre or flavor. It was like trying to turn chicken tenders and mac and cheese into a four-course steak dinner. They added in so many unnecessary subplots just to lengthen it into a three-movie series. And Brad, our friend Josh Larson at Larson on Film wrote into us on Twitter when we asked him what his biggest letdown was. And he said the Hobbit films. And that's even though I like two of the three. Huh, man. Yeah, that's amazing. I I will say if you want a detailed analysis on why the Hobbit sucks, 
there is an amazing series. It's a five-part YouTube series done yep. by Just Right, W-R-I-T-E, Just Right. Which is a great channel, by the yeah, way. Yeah, phenomenal channel. If you want to learn more about movies, go watch some of his videos. But he did an amazing series. It's a five-part series called Why the Hobbit Sucks, part one, two, three, four, and five. Go watch that if you want a truly in-depth analysis on why those movies were terrible. But needless to say... The Hobbit trilogy was hands down, even as much as I've been disappointed by Star Wars, those are better movies by far (laughs) than The Hobbit. And I really, really don't like The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi. Well, there you have it. Our top fives on biggest letdowns of the 2010s. As this decade comes to an end, we would love to hear what your biggest letdown of the 2010s was. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard, Film and Whiskey Nation. Call us at 216-800-5923. Once again, that is 216-800-5923. And guys, if you're looking to make a New Year's resolution... How about you make this one? Share the Film and Whiskey podcast with one person each month in 2020. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. Bye.